The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, and see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The second reading is from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 48, which is page 810 in the Pew Bible. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That what you say is in yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes a sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord.
And today, Jesus tackles six areas where we struggle. And he goes right to the issues at the core of our hearts. And the whole idea here is, it's not just your external actions that make a difference in the world, but God is after what's going on in your heart. And all of us, at any point in our lives, need to, you know, wherever you're at this morning, there's always this this need to say, Lord, what's going on in my heart? I might be doing all of the good things, all the right things, um, but my heart is not towards you. I'm just doing this because I think I should. Um, But inside, I'm dealing with all kinds of stuff. I might be dealing with my own sinfulness. I might be dealing with anger. I might be dealing with lust. I might have uh, sinful habits that I'm doing off by myself that I don't want others to know. And on the outside, I put on this facade that everything's great, but deep down, there's some real issues. Maybe there isn't major, major issues in your life. Maybe there is. But the call here is, is, is Jesus reminding us it's not just your external actions that make you sort of good or not. That's not the issue. God is after the core of your heart and after the transformation of your heart. And as your heart is transformed by being in Christ and abiding in him, that life, that newness of life spills out in how we relate to others. And so rather than our external actions somehow making us right inside, The gospel of Jesus Christ is that as we come to him, broken and sinful and and repentant and invite him to come and transform us, it makes a change inside that then spills out in how we act and behave. And it should make a difference in how we act and behave. That's what the book of James is all about, that your faith without works is dead. The faith that you have internally should come out in how you behave out in the world. And so the two need to go together at the moment. We say, well, my Christian faith is just all about my life inside. It doesn't matter how I live. We miss the boat. And the minute we say, well, it's just about doing good stuff, but it doesn't really matter what I what I think or feel about God or my faith in Jesus. It's just as long as I'm a good person, we also miss the boat. The gospel ties them both together. But the core here is Jesus is after the deepest parts, the deepest recesses of our hearts and after the core issues in our hearts. And he calls us to make a fresh start. Um, this first one is about anger. And as I was looking at it, thinking about it, I was remembering a teacher of mine uh, in a class I was taking once. And he was sharing with us some of the struggles he had had in his life. Uh, he was also a pastor. So he was talking about just the, the propensity for burnout and the loneliness and just the issues that happen in pastoral ministry. And just, um, he was at this place once in his life. He was telling us about it. Um, where he was really quite low, and so he had taken time off, and he was going to counseling and, you know, work, trying to work through some stuff. And somewhere along the way, <clears throat> pardon me, he ended up in a conversation with a Catholic nun. I think he was at a retreat center or something. Anyway, he got this conversation with this nun, and, uh, you know, he was explaining to her what was going on in his life. And partway through, she just sort of stopped him and said, uh, you're very angry. And immediately he said, well, no, I'm not angry. Like, I'm not an angry, I don't have a temper, right? He wasn't prone to sort of outbursts. Uh, he wasn't an angry person, but he, he turns to us, kind of the students in class, and he said, I was so angry. <laughs> and I had no idea. I had no idea that kind of underneath all the stuff that was happening in my life, I was, I was quite angry. Angry at myself, I was angry at the Lord, I was angry at things that had happened in my life. God was getting at the core of his woundedness in his heart. And God wanted to bring some healing there. But he was going underneath all kind of the 
the external stuff and getting at the core of things. I had another friend once, a um, friend from college, her and her husband used to come through driving on their way back to school several times, uh, twice a year, on their way to school in Maritimes and on their way back. And she, one summer, had this opportunity to learn how to paint from an Eastern Orthodox priest. You know, just happened, right? Just happened to meet this guy. So she was learning how to paint and uh, was painting this picture of Jesus, like an Eastern Orthodox icon. And the priest kind of looked over her shoulder and kind of looked at her and looked at the, looked at the picture again. He said, um, what's wrong with your relationship with Jesus? And she's painting. She goes, nothing. We're good. Same sort of thing. She turns to us at the table and she goes, things were not well between me and Jesus. <laughs> and it was coming out in her painting. The priest could pick up on it and said, there's something going on in how you are painting him that indicates there's stuff going on in your heart that you need to address. God wants to get right at the core issues in our hearts. And in this passage, Jesus looks at six different situations and really gets to the core of them. And he wants to He wants to reveal and bring to light the issues in our lives, our anger, our pride, our lust. And that's what he does here. But first, before he jumps into that, he lays some groundwork. What Jesus does here is he's going to be interpreting the Old Testament law. And he has to explain to his Jewish followers he's not undoing the law. He's not abolishing it. He's not dismissing. This is the Old Testament, you know, Israel scriptures. He's He's not saying they don't count. In fact, he says in verse 17, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Right? It's like, don't even entertain that thought. Far from it. Right? The distinction that Jesus is making here is between what the people have heard and and what has been interpreted from the law and the law itself. So Jesus says, in each of these six areas, he says, you have heard it said. And by saying that, he's also indicating the people have heard how to live through the rabbis and through the rabbinical tradition. So he's saying, you've heard it said this way, but now I am saying this. And he does that several times. The point is this. Sometimes our interpretation of the word can be off. And it's important for us to uh, study well and to use wisdom and how we uh, come up with doctrine and think about those sorts of things and what's been passed on in church history and all that sort of thing. Jesus' point here is that sometimes... We can have uh, an interpretation that can be off, and it's important for us to distinguish between a false interpretation and the Word of God, the living Word of God. The, the problem is, in, in, in the Jesus' critics, a lot of the scribes and Pharisees, they couldn't see the difference between their interpretation and Israel's scriptures itself. And so whenever Jesus sort of combats one of their long-held traditions or beliefs, in their mind, they're not seeing him correcting the interpretation. They think he's attacking God's word itself. And that's why they get so angry and why they eventually want to kill him, right? Uh, because in their minds, this is blasphemy. You can't do this. So Jesus is saying, you've heard this, but I'm saying this. And in doing that, he's fulfilling that passage from Deuteronomy that Michelle read for us uh, before she jumped into the Matthew pit. In that passage in Deuteronomy, God says, I'm going to raise up a new prophet like Moses. I'm going, and what's Moses known for, right? He's the law bringer, the law giver. He's the one that communicates God's sort of charter for living to Israel. And so Jesus, in many ways, is now being, he's fulfilling that prophecy. He's being like a new Moses. He's giving them a fresh interpretation of the law 
as the capital W, Word of God himself. And he's in, uh, fulfilling that. He's not saying it didn't matter, but he's saying this is the intent behind God's law. You see this fulfilled all throughout his life and through his ministry. Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament sets up. All its sacrificial system, this idea of atoning for sin through the shedding of blood is fulfilled at the cross. The idea of all the wisdom literature, this is how you live in God, is fulfilled as Jesus lives a perfect life. You see that lived out. So Jesus' point here is that there are things in the law that are completed in him that are now no longer part of us to live as Christians. For instance, we don't sacrifice animals. We didn't get here this morning. Sing some songs with Keith. Then I came in with like a sheep. And like we slid them here on the altar, right? Didn't happen. It's not what we're doing. We're not sacrificing anybody. We don't need to because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, right? That's why this isn't an altar. It's a table. Very, very important. Right? We're not re-sacrificing something. Instead, God's welcomed us here at this table where we remember and celebrate all that Jesus has done through that one all-sufficient sacrifice of his body and his blood. That's what happens here at the table, Christians. So that's fulfilled by Jesus. So Jesus wants, wants to talk about these six areas, but he also says, look it, I'm not, I'm not abolishing the law, I'm fulfilling it. At the same time, he says this in verse 20. And this is tricky. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God, never enter the kingdom of heaven, which is interchangeable. Um, the point is that the Pharisees' righteousness, what they saw as righteousness, was based on their external actions. They thought, if I do the things right, this will make a change in my heart. And indeed, what you do does affect what you love and who you love and that sort of thing. But Jesus' point here is this. As you come and abide in a living relationship with God, it will change you from the inside out. You've heard it said that if you live this way, you're good. I'm telling you, live into me in these ways, and this will transform you from the inside out. In that way, your righteousness really will exceed the scribes and Pharisees. Because it won't just be a religious facade will be true transformation from the inside out. How many of you, and if you've walked with God for any season of time, can say, yes, my life has been transformed in some way by Jesus Christ? And I hope you can raise your hand. That in some way, maybe it's minimal. Maybe you think, good Lord, if only it was more, right? It feels like we're not getting anywhere. But the idea is, as I abide in Christ, he starts to change me. He starts making more and more into the person he's called and created me to be. In fact, to be in Jesus is to be truly human, to abide in him. So let's look at these six areas. These are the areas that Jesus focuses on. And in each one, he says, you've heard it said, but now I say. So there's six sort of comparisons between the, this older interpretation of the law and what Jesus wants to say. If you have... Headings in your Bible, which were added later. Those, it's okay if they're not there. Don't worry if you have a weird Bible. You don't, it's okay. But it's really helpful if you do. So mine says anger. If you, if you grab a few Bible, it'll be the same as mine. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. Just in light stuff. I said a prayer this morning. I said, i got to preach about anger and lust and divorce this morning. So, you know, it's all good. Just... Just gentle things, really easy, like good stuff. 
So what I want to do is, is I want to very quickly, because I want to be worth the time. Um, you could probably preach on each of these, you know, but I don't want to. In fact, when I was divvying up the passages, I was like, let's just put all these together. Let's just let's put them all together, and then that works well. When Pastor Al comes, we get to give it to the needy section. Brilliant, right? The Lord was like, see, I worked it over. It's all good. So let's let's talk about each of these very quickly and what the what Jesus wants to get at the core of our hearts, right? And this first one's anger. And anger, perhaps almost more probably tied with lust for what happens at the core of our hearts, is so easy for us to slip into. And it's so dangerous. The idea here, of course, is that uh, premeditated murder is prohibited in the sixth commandment. Yes, absolutely. Why is that, though? The reason you can't go kill someone, this sounds so silly because it's like, yeah, you just shouldn't kill someone. Like, that's sort of ingrained in us, right? Like, it's wrong to go kill somebody. Wrong to murder somebody. Yeah, right? The reason you shouldn't, though, is because every human being is made in the image and likeness of God, which means they carry sort of the stamp of God's worthiness and dignity upon them. To harm the image is to seek to harm the one in whose image it's made. When I go to harm someone, I'm violating the image of God, which means I'm hurting something, someone that God deeply loves. And so the whole idea in the Judeo-Christian worldview is uh, it's wrong for me to violate you as a human person. The whole idea of human rights is born in Western civilization because of the Judeo-Christian influence on Western, on Western culture. If you ask the UN now where universal human rights come from, they'll say, we don't know, but we all just agree these things should be where they are. We all agree everyone should treat each other well. We don't want to agree on on where they came from. The reason why you don't want to agree where they came from is because they come from from the church. They come from the Christian influence on the West. This is why we we don't kill people, right? To actively harm you is to violate that which bears God's Jesus' point here is, it's not just physical harm, but if you even start thinking in your heart, I want to take that guy out, then you're in trouble. Because God is not just after whether or not you did or didn't do the external thing. He's after what's going on in your heart. He said, I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Verse 22. The reason human anger is so dangerous that we need to keep it in check is that it often turns into a desire to like destroy someone or to damage them, and it can really easily kind of spin out of control. And I think back to my teacher's example where he didn't even realize he was angry, right? But deep down, there was all this sort of anger issues here. The warning is, don't violate the image of God in someone. And the encouragement comes really quickly, right? If you're offering your gift at the altar, if you are in the midst of worship, which is what that would mean, and then you remember someone has something against you, go and make it right. Be reconciled to your brother. The point here is, come to reconciliation very quickly and don't hang on to old grudges and old issues that you have between people. That's the idea. Um, Now, you might say, okay, great, but like, what about, (laughs) what about when I can't talk to that person like because they died? Right? What if that person just won't talk to me at all? Like, there's all sorts of how do you actually live this out, which is a little more where the rubber hits the road and more, a little more messy. But you know the general gist of it. The idea is don't hang on to the anger. 
If you have an issue with someone and you haven't worked it out, you need to go try and work it out. They may not extend forgiveness to you, but you can at least then say, I've done my best to try and work this out. And you can come with a clean conscience and say, God, I, I'm realizing I've sinned, I'm at fault, I've tried to work this out as best I can, I'm going to continue to try and walk in love and relationship with this person as hard as that is, when they don't want to give me the time of day, but it is a process. And I think that's what's helpful to remember, it's a process of learning to live back into reconciliation with people. It's very difficult. Come to terms quickly. Um, and then he talks about, like, if you actually get in trouble, you're probably going to go to jail. And that's probably a good thing. You know, <laughs> just like common civil justice is probably helpful in this situation. Um, I hope none of you are actively, you know, being criminal towards others. Um, but if you are, there it is. The idea here, though, is come to reconciliation with make things right. Like husbands and wives... Don't go to bed when you're angry with each other. Like, work it out. What are you doing? Why would you not want to work it out? You're married to each other for crying out loud. Like, is that not why you got married? Because you love each other? So why are you not working it out? Like, you don't know how to communicate? Well, learn how. Like, that's a learned skill. You don't just magically know how to communicate. Figure it out. You're married to each other for crying out loud. I feel like I can say that because I've been married for, like, ten years now. Like, I know a little bit about it, you know? It's not like I just got married. I got three kids, ten years of marriage. I know something about something by this point, right? I should. That's really hard. Like, we get, we get angry with each other. Me and Sarah? Oh, yeah. All kinds of stuff. She's mad about how I did the thing. I'm mad because she didn't say the thing soon enough. Whatever. Get over it. Work it out, you know? Good grief. Sometimes I just, oh, I just, I said to her the other day, I said, I'm so glad that we really don't, like, there's lingering issues in our relationship because there's always ongoing stuff. And there's like personal style stuff that bother you about each other, right? Like habits and stuff. That's always there. That's not make or break kind of situation. But if there's ongoing like actual nonsense or you don't know how to talk to each other, like figure it out. Like it's too important not to know how to... You know, it can marry them. Don't you want to be able to talk to them? Again. I understand if it's really hard and you're really angry at each other and there's real issues that if, if your marriage matters enough, like, go get real counseling. Like, this is not rocket science. You know? I don't know. Is that, is that okay to say? Yeah. Work your stuff out. Work your nonsense out. The other thing is, if you have a long-standing issue with someone, you really need to try and make that make that right and work it out. And that takes courage, and it's really hard, but it's totally worth it. That's the anger one. Don't let the anger stew inside and destroy you. Destroy your marriage, destroy your work relationships. Try and work that stuff out as best as you can, relying on the Holy Spirit, saying, God, please help me. Right? That's the first one. Lust, just jamming. Nice. Let's go to lust now. Perfect. Brilliant. Love, lovely topic. Lust begins in the heart, at the center of our identity and will. And Jesus says here, don't commit adultery. You've heard it said, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, or, sorry, you, I say, I read the wrong thing. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent, this is for the women too, I'm just saying, you're not off the hook, that's what I mean. <laughs> with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you know what that means? Jesus doesn't approve of the look but don't touch kind of idea. Jesus says, uh uh. You're looking? You're committing it in your heart. When I was in youth, we had this thing called bouncing eyes. Not because everyone in youth was scandalously dressed. That's not what I meant. 
I mean, when I was a teenager, we learned about this thing called bouncing eyes, which basically meant if you see someone who uh, is very attractive but is maybe showing a little too much, don't linger on them, right? Like, hello, oh my goodness. Uh, and it's kind of funny, but it, it's, it's true. It's so easy, just, oh my, oh hello. And just carry on, you know? This goes back to the image-bearing thing. As soon as I objectify you, I'm no longer treating you as a human person. I'm treating you as something to fulfill a longing in me. And that violates that person's image bearing. Right? It dehumanizes them. That's the whole idea there. And what do you do with that? If you Maybe, maybe you really battle with lust. And uh, that can be really hard. And, and the, the issues with pornography in our culture are huge. I don't want to make light of that. The idea is, as soon as the thought crosses your mind, to engage in a lustful thought or habit, you need to you need to say no and run from that and cut it out right then and there. Soon you need to take your thought like captive to Jesus. Soon as that thought crosses your mind, soon as that desire to go on that internet, go to that site because you know how to get there, you know how to see the stuff. Soon as that desire comes, you run to Jesus, and it'll hit when you're lonely and when you're hungry and when you're emotionally down. You run to Jesus. And he uses deliberate overstatement, right? Like slicing off your arm to emphasize how important it is to maintain uh, your exclusivity to your spouse. That's kind of the idea there, right? The point is, even things of great value uh, should be given up if they're leading you to sin. So, I've had people, uh, since I've been in pastoral ministry, who have given me their computers, um, because they're battling with pornography. Um, because they realized having a computer was not as important as giving their, their hearts and lives to Jesus. Now, a lot of us would say, that computer's valuable. Your smartphone's valuable. Oh my goodness, what if I don't have it? Wait, your pocket idol? You can figure it out. It's my pocket idol. I take it all the time. Look at it, worship the idea is, if you have something of value, but it's causing you to sin, get rid of that thing. Um, this, of all of these, this is the one that I struggle with the most. I'll be perfectly honest. This is pastoral honest time. Um, it's really easy to get into this. It's super easy because of this. Because the internet is super, super easy. Um, there's times where I wish I just get rid of this phone, and I probably could to some degree, but I also use it a lot for pastoral ministry and other things. It's not the phone's fault. The phone's a tool. The issue's right here. I have to deal with this, and that's what Jesus gets to in this passage. So I have to be very careful. One of the things I do is I have to stay in really open and honest communication with Sarah. If I've looked at something inadvertently or intentionally, I, I need to tell her. I can't let that sever our relationship. And so if there's an issue if that becomes, starts to become an issue in me, we are very, we already, you know, we talk through that pretty openly. Uh, guys, if that's an issue for you, um, I am more than happy to walk with you through that to help you come to freedom. Uh, there can be freedom from lust and pornography, if that's you. But a big part of it is giving, giving your thought life to Jesus, right? The moment that unclean thought crosses your mind, you give it to the Lord. 
Just simple stuff. All right, divorce. Verse 31. This one's kind of confusing because there's a lot of cultural stuff going on. But the point is this. Um, divorce was super widespread at the time. Kind of like now. <laughs> it's not that different. People got divorced for like no reason. Um, so God institutes pretty a pretty hefty sense of you can't divorce just for kicks. Because it affects other people, if you didn't know. Like, specifically your kids. Um, but at the culture at the time, if a woman got divorced, um, she'd likely go back and live with her parents, but it would be very hard for her to potentially throw her livelihood for the rest of her life. So the idea the, the idea is, especially for the guys, who at this time would be the ones to issue the divorce, guys, don't treat your wives like garbage. Like, uphold the marriage, crying out loud. You got married, figure it out, right? Work out the issues. The idea here, too, is, is you, it upholds the sanctity of marriage, protects women from getting divorced for no reason. Um, and God, uh, Jesus says here, who is God? Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries divorce with you, it's adultery. And you're like, oh, what? Who? How does that work? It's based on, of course, this almost means to go without saying, but it needs to be said, and I could be thrown in jail for this, probably. Are you still recording? Brilliant. <laughs> this is based on God's original design intention for marriage, which is a permanent union of a man and a woman to then become one flesh, right? And divorce breaks the union, which is why it's a big deal. It also means that scripture prohibits any kind of sexual contact or lifestyle outside of the marriage one man, one woman union. That includes a whole bunch of stuff, which I probably don't need to list for you. But there it is. The moment we start, and this is sort of an aside, the moment we start saying that certain things are okay that God has said are not okay is the moment we take the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil again. When you take the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis, the point is Adam and Eve say, we're not going to abide by God's standards of good and evil. We're going to define good and evil according to ourselves and Eve like God. That's the whole idea. When I start saying there's things that God has said that I don't really like, and God needs to update his ideas so he can get on with the game, I'm taking from the tree. I'm trying to find good people by my own terms. That's that's sketchy. Be very careful with that. It doesn't mean that everyone who gets remarried has committed adultery. It means, <laughs> you're wondering about that, I've got good articles on that. The point is, Whoever, if you married someone who was wrongly divorced, they're still legally married in God's eyes, and so they're committing adultery. That's how that works. Is that complicated? We'll talk about that more later. Basically, the point is, like, don't divorce lightly, because it matters. Right? Brilliant. Oaths. This one's short. It means that this doesn't mean don't swear, which is good. But that's not what this is about. This is about if you invoke God's name to guarantee one of your statements. Um, Jesus' disciples aren't to do that at all. The point is your words should be, you should have such an integrity in your life that you don't need to. Remember like when your handshake was as good as your signature kind of thing? Like it's like people should know by your lifestyle the integrity of your heart that you don't need to say, I promise on the Bible or whatever. You don't need to because people know that you are an upright person. That's what that's about. Retaliation. 
So now we're fine, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, don't resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek because you're using your left hand, and you whack them, so that way, oh no, this way. Yeah, you use your right hand, whack, so it hits their right cheek, so predominantly right-handed people. Sorry, you left-handed folks, being left out of Jesus' analogy. Turn to him the other one also. If someone wants to sue you, take your tunic, give them something, up, like give them your cloak, right? If they're forcing you to go a mile, go two. Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. The point, okay, here's the thing. Jesus is not saying that governments and police forces and soldiers can't use force to combat evil. You can't take this passage and say, this is why when someone comes into my home to take my family, I can't use self-defense. Okay? How to not read the Bible this morning when you take this out of context. The context here is individual, individual conduct, right? The idea is personal vengeance. If someone personally is attacking you, the point is, don't escalate the situation, right? Kill them with kindness, a friend of mine in college used to say. We're mad at that person, let's just love them like crazy, he'd say. We're going to send them stuff, we're going to buy them a thing, we're going to do this, kill them with kindness. We'll reap ashes on their head, he used to say. That's a biblical analogy of some kind. The point is, don't escalate it. Um, if you are personally insulted, don't hit back. One time we were at the parking lot in Walmart, and these people started getting intimate. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like actually happening before. If one, if one person had just stepped back and been like, oh, it would have stopped. Right? Like, you see this in hockey games, right? If one guy throws his gloves off, and he's like, let's fight. If the other guy's like, whatever, man. Then the other guy just looks kind of like an idiot, right? It's like, whatever, we're done. As soon as the other guy loses his gloves, then we're like, we're in it. We're going to fight. We're men. Let's do it. The point here is don't escalate it. This doesn't mean, like, if you're in in an abusive relationship, this doesn't mean stay in the abusive relationship. In fact, in an abusive relationship, if you stay and don't do anything, it will escalate, which is the opposite of the intent here. The intent here is don't escalate the situation. So if you're in an abusive relationship of some kind, like physically, you're being abused, you need to get out of it, and you need to flee that. You don't just turn the other cheek. Um, Because that's not about personal vengeance at this point. It's about protecting yourself. That's okay. Okay? Don't take the Bible and say, I had to stay in this abusive relationship because I couldn't deal with this person. Don't don't do that. It's weird. It's not. Don't read the Bible. The point is, take steps to prevent further attacks, right? And then finally, love your enemies. You've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies too. Thanks, Jesus. Thank you. Praise you, Lord. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Have you ever heard those stories of like someone's son or daughter's been killed by someone and then the parents go and forgive the cheater? Oh, I just think I can't even imagine. They're living this out. That's living that out. The point is God shows grace and care for all of his creatures, even those who live in active defiance of him. And so should we. And so we're to imitate God's love both for our neighbors and our enemies. And the, the reference to the tax collectors 
right? The tax collectors represented Rome, who's over top of Israel at the time, and they, they were known for extortion. <laughs> they used to just take extra money for themselves and help each other out. Um, so Jesus is saying, look, at those people love each other, but you're called to something more than that. You're called to love even those who don't love you. Here's the point. All these areas where we're called to live out of the heart, let Jesus transform our hearts, our lives, anger and our lust, how quick we are as culture to deal with, you know, just dismiss people through divorce, uh, the way in which we think we need to take oaths because our lives are lacking integrity, the way in which we want to retaliate against people. And, and a lot of that's internal stuff. Jesus is calling us to pursue God's life and vision. And a lot of this is about laying down your own self-seeking, eh? Like a lot of it is don't treat people as a way to get ahead. Don't lust after people and dehumanize them. Don't attack people out of personal vengeance, right? Honor your marriages. Honor people who are in marriages and don't mess up with that. Have a sort of life that you don't need to swear <coughs> at Your people see the integrity of you. The overarching theme is Jesus wants to get right at the heart of who we are as people. And he wants to call us into a deeper life. And so rather than just looking at external stuff, Jesus says, you've heard, you've heard how to live a good life, but I want you to take your thought life captive to God. I want you to give your the grudges and the anger that you might carry. I want you to, to give the, the lust that you might have to God. I want you to give that the, the sense of retaliation and calling people down. I want you to give that to God. I want you to I want you to stop calling people out on Facebook, right? I want you to not just not just love the people who love you back, but love people just because they're made in God's image. I want you to bless people just because they're people. They're worthy of love and affection and respect just because they're people. That gets through a lot of the nonsense that we hear today. The point is this. And maybe there's not a specific, maybe you're not dealing with lust in your life. Maybe your marriage is totally fine. You're like, hey, we can communicate. We figured it out too, man. It's all good. But the point is, is this. I know I keep saying that, but underneath all of this, the overarching theme is what's going on in here. God wants that too. So I want to ask this morning as we head to the table, those that are going to help with communion, you guys can come up. Keith, if you mind giving me a hand to the table out of the We're going to pray in a minute. Worship to you guys can come up. But as we head to the table, let's let coming to the table today be an act of saying, God, I need you to come and shape this life in here. This isn't just about external actions, but Lord, I need you to come shape my heart. The old song says, Take my heart, let it be. Consecrated, Lord. So, Lord, let's pray together. Father, as we get, as we come to this table, as we hear this word this morning, for many of us it can be a convicting word, or at least a challenging word, Lord, as we examine what goes on in our hearts. So, folks, if you're here this morning, just even as we pray, if there's anger or lust, maybe there's another issue you're dealing with. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe you're frustrated by things in life, the way things have gone. 
Maybe there's fears there, there's worries there. I can't fill that in for you. But let the Lord examine your heart. Just say, Lord, if there's something here that's keeping me from following you more closely as a disciple, if there's a way in which I'm hurting people, maybe I don't even realize it. There's something in my life that doesn't honor you. Lord, would you come and remove that? And Lord, we just invite you now to come and just speak to our hearts individually, Lord, each one of us. Is there an area in our life that we need to give to you? Lord, is there a, a habit or a temptation we often just give into without even thinking that actually hinders us in our walk? Let the Lord, uh, let the Lord just speak those things into your heart. If there's stuff there that you need to hand to him, say, Lord, show me what that is. Lord, show us what that is, we pray. We ask for forgiveness, Lord. We come to you today. We thank you that your mercies are new, Lord. The word says, as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this morning, Lord, we, we come again and recognize there's things in our lives that we should not be doing. There's things we've done that we ought not to have done. And there's things we left undone that we ought to have done. There's things that we didn't do that we should have done. But Lord, your heart is not to pile guilt on us. That's the enemy. Lord, your, your desire is for us to come recognizing our faults and then to be embraced by you and find our salvation and our forgiveness in you, Jesus. So, Lord, we confess our sins this morning. Lord, we repent of our hearts, things in our hearts. We ask that you would come. Come and cleanse us, Lord. Come and heal us. Repair the brokenness in our marriages. Repair the relationships with the ones that we've held grudges. Lord, would you come and breathe fresh life into us this morning. And as we come to this table, May it be a celebration, a proclamation, remembering that you have paid the price for our sins. We don't need to. We don't need to walk in the guilt and the shame and somehow atone for the mess-ups in our life. You've done that for us. Lord, we come to receive the free gift of your grace through faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we come to this table, may it be a a receiving of life again. This is where we're tangibly taking a piece of bread and a little sip of juice, remembering your Passover meal, your last supper. Lord, in the same way, you come to fill us fresh in the core of our beings, right in our hearts. You're the one who satisfies our deepest needs. You're the one for whom we are truly hungry. We need you to come, Lord, and shape our lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to come to you.